Hello everyone and welcome to another incredibly exciting and very vigorous episode of the Madams Cast. I've got a very special guest this week and uh, I'll introduce him in just a moment. But a little bit of housekeeping up front, please. If you're listening in or you're sharing this cast with your friends, please do download rather than stream because it really helps us to reach a bigger audience and I'll be incredibly grateful. Um, Okay, this week's guest is someone and it's very exciting because he is the first nominee of a former guest that's coming on the cast. So I'm excited because my nomination scam is starting to work out. The fantastic Sini Glaster, who uh, founded We Five took part in the very first episode of the Madams Cast, and she recommended this guy. So here he is, Drew Baker. Are you there? I am indeed. Good morning, Tim. Hello, hello. I thought for a second you weren't there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm good, man. I'm really good. How are you? Very well, thank you. You know, it's been as as it has for everyone. I'm, we don't need to go into it that it's been a funny old time, but. You know what? I think on balance, I'm I'm pretty happy. Work is good. Um, I'm spending more time with my kids, spending more time at home. Um, and I've got that balance between work life and home life. So actually, all things considered, I think I'm trying to look for the glass half full here. Um, and so, yes, I'm happy and I cannot complain. Brilliant. How many kids have you got, Drew? And how old are they? I have two boys. They are nine and nearly 12. You, you better give us their names, otherwise, you know, they'll yeah, feel bad. I'll be in trouble, yeah. So Alexander or Zander is my youngest, and Aaron is my eldest. And we have a new addition to the household in the last month, and that would be Luna, our miniature schnauzer, who is now 12 weeks old. Oh, puppy in the house. That's a whole new layer of, um, yeah, interesting scenarios going on. It is a whole new day. Okay. The reason I was a bit late um, dialing in or getting, you know, being able to speak to you was because I trod in a little treat she had left for me. Nice. Nice. We call those landmines. Oh, it was more of a land puddle. <laughs> Don't slip on that. There'll be trouble. There will be. Um, okay, Drew. Well, you started talking about your brilliant life, work life balance, but. Can you tell us a bit about work, who you are, how you've come to do what you do? Um, and then we'll sort of dive into the Madam's cast proper. Imagine that I've never heard of you. Great. Well, um, I'm Drew Baker. I am a one of the founders of Tempest Foods, which is a British charcuterie company, along with my business partner, Thomas Whitaker. Um, I've been in the wonderful world of food now for 10 years, uh, in which time I've owned a restaurant. I've pub restaurant I've worked in restaurants I've had a catering company I now have my charcuterie business and this was all launched in 2010 um, when I had the good fortune to be on MasterChef UK um, which I was on and won in 2010 so fast forward a decade and no way so yes no way that's exciting you're a MasterChef winner correct I am I am indeed and you know it, it really was it sort of springboarded me into the world of food, which I was always had this pipe dream of working in. But, you know, when I left school, food was never considered, in inverted commas, a real job. You know, you, you went to school, you went to university, you got a job as something that, you know, would have deemed, again, in inverted commas, a proper job, be it law or medicine or, or finance. And, and actually, after trying my hand at various bits and pieces, it just, just didn't feel right. Um, and then... After MasterChef, I kind of had this kind of introduction into this wonderful world of food. 
And as an outsider prior to that, you only think that if you're on a job in food, you've either got to be a, a chef in a restaurant or maybe write or work for a food magazine. You don't realize there are hundreds and hundreds of brilliant careers available within this world. So I kind of got to peek behind the curtain. Um, and actually, after a decade of trying various bits and pieces, I've kind of found my feet now as a producer. And it's 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 what I love doing. It's um, something I'm deeply passionate about and care deeply about and something I'm very proud of. Well, you're, you're very good at it. You very kindly sent me a little bit of your charcuterie through the post. And I love getting random stuff like that through the post. Um, and I've been trying a few little nibbles here and there this morning, uh, in, uh, including, is it King Alfred's ham? King Peter, yep. Yeah. King Peter ham. It's absolutely delicious. And can I just say how nice it is to see some fat on some ham? Yeah, I mean, it's completely... Um, it, we've found ourselves in this ridiculous situation where fat has been reviled and, and and sort of made out to be this kind of evil thing. But actually, as we know, the, the flavour sits in amongst that glorious fat. And whether it's in an, a good burger or a good piece of beef or in a chicken thigh, the fat is is essential. And, and actually, we're celebrating that. So a lot, you know, initially people will kind of look at some of the cuts and go, oh, it's a bit fatty without even tasting it because they've been conditioned to see that fat is or visible fat is bad and i find it a weird kind of yeah inversion where people look at a fatty piece of meat and they'll cut it off but then they'll dollop tablespoons of mayonnaise into what they're eating so it's this this kind of funny thing that's happened where enough publicity about fat is bad but as long as it's invisible like a mayonnaise people don't realize it's predominantly oil just suspended you know held in an emulsion but <laughs> that for some reason that's any better and and what we're really trying to do is show that that fat is actually good it's essential as part of your diet we're not saying you're going to eat that all day every day in fact quite the opposite we're saying eat less meat but when you do eat less meat or any animal protein make sure it's the best stuff you can eat um and and that you know as a as a statement has far wide-ranging implications but we thought if we put our money where our mouths are and start doing that from here um then hopefully there will be a kind of ripple effect outwards fantastic well it's it's absolutely delicious and um i feel like this is quite a natural place for us to dive in to the three things that you'd like to change about food um in your ideal world uh, um do, do you feel like that do you feel like you're ready to go I think it's a natural progression. I mean, I've kind of touched on one of them now. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes. I think... Yes, see, that's what I'm worried that was happening. It, it, was, it was very, you know, very naturally done. And obviously, with a, a broadcast of your calibre, I'd expect nothing less than these seamless transitions from segue to, to the next piece. So very, oh, you know, <laughs> masterfully done, Tim. I'm, I'm learning and taking notes. Um, but, yes. Yeah, as, as seamless as a pre <laughs> gearbox <laughs> right okay yeah. brilliant okay Trev. so go on dive in give me yeah. number one what's the first thing you'd like to change about well, the world of the list is it's it's i mean it's our approach to animal protein and it's it's the way the relationship we have with meat we've we found ourselves in this ridiculous position where either you're an out and out a carnivore or you're a vegan and there seems to be no grey area, which is where the sensibility should should reside. Um, I want to see us eating better quality meat less often, and by that I mean animal, you know, animals that have been reared ethically, that have been reared sustainably. I mean, generally speaking, in this country, 
our animal protein is reared pretty well. Um, there are obviously instances where it's not as well it can be, but our animal welfare standards are generally higher in this country than in many others. Um, but that's being eroded. There's a lot of stuff, anywhere else. You know, we're seeing at the minute about whether it's a chlorinated chicken from the US, and that seems to become the kind of poster boy or the, the whipping icon of, of the, what's happening. But actually, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much potentially horrific stuff that could be led into this country. And what I want us to do is recognize that and protect what we have. I want us to to understand that we've got incredible farmers who do incredible work and produce incredible meat, but we've got to support them. We've got to eat I, in my, you know, it, the, the right way. Something that's sourced sustainably and, and reared sustainably and ethically is something that we, you know, we'll have forever more. Now, as long, if we start buying that and we start buying into sort of cheap alternatives from abroad, our farmers, our farmers are going to suffer and that choice is simply going to vanish. It sounds a bit dramatic and I'm paraphrasing for effect, but we do not want to find ourselves in a situation where the only animal protein we have on offer is, is imported horrific stuff from from thousands of miles away. Um, so I would like to see us understanding more. As consumers, I want us asking more questions. I want us to understand where meat comes from, the implications of eating meat, and actually to have a more invested relationship with meat as opposed to blindly eating it three times a day, which actually when you think about it, it is verging on the obscene um, to eat meat three times a day. It's kind of bonkers. Um, and go back to seeing it as yeah. something, as yeah. more of a treat, as something, you know, in moderation, eat it, eat less of, of it, but better meat and actually think, then what do you do? So with a meat, make the, with a meal, make the animal protein the smaller element of it, but actually more vegetables. And then that, then the, the spiral off that, which would be point number two, is I know everyone talks about seasonal and local and the two words have almost disappeared because they, that you just filter them out because they don't mean anything. Cause you'll sit down in a, inverted commas, foodie pub, gastro pub, where the first page talks all about the chef's obsession and passion for, for locally sourced seasonal products. And it's November <laughs> and you're hoping for something warm and warming and delicious and kind of comforting. Uh, you know, some, And then the first three off the bat, you've got an asparagus starter um, and you think, oh God, you're already <laughs> off the back. But, and flip the desserts and they've got, you know, three strawberry desserts. And, and all of a sudden, you're in a foul, grotty mood. Um, or I. Right, okay, hang on, drunk. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on. Right, because I'm gonna. This is point two. You're diving right, into so here, and two, I just first one I really is our uh, point one is our relationship with animal protein. Ask more questions. Be more invested. Learn more about it. Question why you eat what you eat, uh, and then learn more about where it comes from. Once you've got that informed picture, you can make decisions that I think would be better for you and what you feed yourself and your family. So that's number one. Have a better, closer relationship with animal protein, um, which part of which yeah, is eating brilliant. less of it. That's pretty clear. Um, so number two yeah. is if you're eating less animal protein, what are you eating more of? And I'm then saying, so what we want to be doing is eating more vegetables more pulses more grains um and that in terms of so what should i be eating just get a and then it leads on to the thing of have a better understanding of what's around and when there's a wonderful website called eat the seasons and you can click on it yeah. and the week when it will tell you what's in season in this country at that time fruit veg fish meat um 
and then you can start to you you start to you know learn what's around and when and and your cooking will will reflect that um so instead of the concept of seasonality being something that that chefs talk about on telly it's something you start to live um you start to understand what's around and then you know naturally these foods tend to go better with each other so i think the spin off from that is that you start to become a better educated cook in terms of your approach and your understanding of what's around uh, and what to be using and when so i think the second thing i'd like to do is for people to understand the seasons and what's around and actually this in turn both of these elements have huge um environmental repercussions if you're eating less meat we know that that's actually fairly um important and especially if you're eating the right sorts of meat that would have a huge impact environmentally not just here but globally and secondly if you're eating stuff that's seasonal yeah, and that's yeah. local it means it's not being flown from argentina or or chile or peru or you know it, it, we have it here uh, and when it's in season there will be a glut of it which means that a it's in plentiful supply so basic economics mean that it will be cheaper because supply is is high and secondly it means yeah. it'll be absolutely perfect yeah. for that time of year um so uh, and that's that's the secret is to, to better food because when stuff's in season and it hasn't and it's fresh because it hasn't traveled miles or it's been you know uh, abused and frozen or whatever it's just so much nicer to eat that cooking becomes not only easier but very natural and a complete joy well you've you've hit it you've hit the nail on the head cooking becomes easier i i, I think that i think people are still quite scared of cooking for, for any number of reasons i think you know the the kind of relentless amount of food cookery now there's a lot of stuff which is more accessible but a lot of it it used to be you know michelin starred chefs showcasing their in- immense craft and their immense skill and i think people were intimidated by that so i think it's um it's what was that are we being attacked by the daleks do you know we're not now i've just uh, that's that's an alert for a meeting which i've got nothing to do with because it's i'm using my wife's computer because i couldn't work out how to use it on my own um oh god have you just decided that she's late for a meeting yeah but th- she'll she'll find out the hard way in a minute um no no (laughs) brilliant carry on carry on it makes it makes your cooking easier and it makes your food better you just need to think and again the first thing when you said that you think river cafe you know you think of that italian approach where you maximize the the effect by having the best possible ingredients and doing as little to them and actually the best ingredient the less faffing around you've got to do with it um so yeah i i if you take it a step further, this concept of understanding the seasons, and, and then you'll realize that you can actually start growing stuff at home. You can start, you know, even if you live in a flat, you can have window boxes with herbs. A little packet of herbs in the supermarket is going to cost you more than a pound. You're growing six or eight types of herbs um, out of your window boxes. You're, you're saving yourself over the course of the year quite a lot of money because, let's be honest, you buy the herbs on your weekly shop, you use a couple of them, and then what you end up doing at the end of the week is throwing out those little pouches of horrible green snotty guns because they've gone off and you just flick them in the bin. Whereas if you had them in your window box, you can just sort of snip them and use them as and when you need it. And that comes from that understanding of the seasons, what you can do, what you're capable of doing at home. Um, totally, so, totally with you. I think that's it. You know, the second thing I like. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, the, yeah, go on. The second thing I think that would be people's understanding of seasonality and what that means and actually all of a sudden that links in directly with point one so the two i think go hand in hand um you know eating less meat 
making it better meat when you do eat it, keeping it local, and then understanding the season. So then bolstering, you know, filling in your diet with pulses, grains, veg, as I said, growing more of your... And then I think the third one would be actually taking that extension and actually growing more of your own stuff. Because, it, I mean, I was the self-professed, I'm crap at gardening. That was my default setting. Because I'd never done it, the assumption is I'd be useful for it. Um, me too, it, me too, me too. You know, you just, because you've never done it, you, you think, well, God, it's like magic, isn't it? I can't do that. It's like baking. I'll, it's baking. If you, you if you don't bake, you just assume you're going to be crap at it, or I do, because it's, it's quite difficult. But when you understand, once you understand the fundamentals. So we've attempted this year because we had time on our hands and, you know, it was quite difficult to get to shops and, um, you know, the whole thing was just a bit more challenging. We thought, well, look, let's take this opportunity to to learn a bit more about it. So we've actually ended up... I bought a load of whiskey barrels, half whiskey barrels from a garden centre, which were delivered to us. Um, bags and bags of compost and got soil from the garden. And actually, we're now growing three types of lettuce, tomatoes, courgettes, broad beans, green beans, tomatoes, strawberries, seven or eight different types of herbs. Um, you know, there's apple trees. And, and all of a sudden, you think, gosh, this is, this is real. You're, you're connecting stuff in the garden with food as opposed to Gardening is a little project you do, and then you go to the supermarket and buy all your veg. And you think, actually, I can link the two together here. Um, and yeah, actually, there is a financial implication. But you also, there's something deeply satisfying at a level that's hard to kind of reach about going into your garden, picking stuff that you've grown, and then going indoors and cooking that, and then sitting down to a meal. And we, we don't have that connection with food anymore, I don't think, in this country. Well, not the vast majority of people. And there seems to be this disconnect between where food comes from and the plate in front of us. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and there's people. that sort of weird... Yeah? There's there's that sort of weird um, sort of sub... There's a, there's a, there's a portion of society, uh, or, or there's a portion of people that eat, everyone eats, but some of them don't seem to care at all no. about how it tastes food is yeah. fuel and yeah. that's that yeah and, and you know that i don't think, i don't think there's any help for those guys are, are they because they just they just don't care but for the majority of people who really you know who like stuff to taste better than it could do if it wasn't great yeah um then then you're absolutely right because I think that sort of, I can't grow anything, by the way, I'm hopeless because I'm much more of a forager and I don't think foragers should try and grow stuff because we're all about instant gratification. But luckily <laughs> I have a, a wonderful wife called Catherine and she's good at growing stuff. And and therefore I'm, I sort of ponce around my garden, uh, plucking herbs from pots and um, removing beautifully ripe tomatoes from the greenhouse and I'll, and I'll post that on Instagram and totally take all the credit even though it's clearly nothing to do with me but the deliciousness that's created by having those few things kicking around is amazing and when you start eating tomatoes only in season to go back to your number two point I think the tomato is the perfect talisman of seasonality correct because a great tomato in the peak of the season grown locally is phenomenal on its own or even just with a tiny bit of salt and some thyme on it there you go and a, and even the very best quality tomato bought in this country any earlier than june let's say is not gonna quite get there and those hard yellow cardboard varieties that are available year round in the dreaded supermarket 
jackets oh. are just not worth having. You'd be better off with a good quality tin tomato. Oh, absolutely. You know, you you that's absolutely it. You know, I can't think I'm trying to think of anything that delivers less joy and more disappointment than a November tomato, which is that kind of funny place between orange and red and it's hard and you cut into it and there's the kind of like a crunch, like a ripe melon texture to it, which offers an unripe melon, sorry. And you bite into it and there's this kind of tannic kind of chalky powderiness to it. And, and you think, why am I doing this? This is, you know, this is utterly pointless, but you, you look at that across the whole spectrum of foods that we eat and it's not just tomatoes. Then you think, well, why am I buying strawberries in November? Because they're horrible, generally speaking. Um, and actually it, it yeah. starts to, been out and and then you know i'm not saying overnight that everyone should start living the good life because it's not realistic but but investing a bit of time and effort and energy if you're interested in food and and i fully appreciate that some people aren't really that bothered and that's absolutely fine you know that i'm not preaching from a soapbox but i do know there are a lot of people who want to know more who want to learn more but one aren't altogether sure where to start looking and two there's that kind of embarrassment. Like when you're in a restaurant and you look at the menu and you don't understand a word, you think, do I ask the waiter? Or do you know what? I just feel like a bit of an idiot if I do. And it's that fear of, of kind of expressing a lack of knowledge about something. And, and I don't know why that's come about, but it has come about. And actually, we want to encourage inquisitiveness, not not kind of punish it. Um, so Yeah, well, often, often the problem is that doesn't know anyway but i've also got i wanted to just give you one more example of of that because i think you're going to like this example and i think it's a, a great example um that i've i've used in the past when i'm trying to hook people in and that is bacon because industrial uh, modern shop bought bacon has nothing to do with bacon at all the only thing that's bacony about it is that it's got bacon written on it yep Absolutely, and it's it's a travesty what people are now accepting as bacon. But you are, that's probably the best example. You know, the strawberry for the fruit and veg world and bacon for the meat world about how it should be. Um, and yes, you've hit the nail right on the head on that one. Um, it, it, it's, you know, bacon should be an absolute joy, but what we get used to is this sort of flaccid thing that comes out of the fridge. You put it in your pan it sort of sits there, wilts a little bit, and then before you know it, it's swimming in this kind of bubbling, milky residue. Um, and oh. it's not very pleasant at all. Oh. It's, you know, yes. So we don't need to go into that anymore because it's disgusting. Um, but you are absolutely right. Tell me, tell me then, tell me, how you make, tell me how you make your bacon. That, that's what I want to know because the people are going to be interested in that. We, they're going to grow their own tomatoes from now on. Yeah. We know that. They're going to only eat strawberries June, July and August. And your wife is still late for the meeting. And um, you are going to tell them how to make bacon or – uh, that is only if they're not going to buy your bacon or your ham or whatever. But can you well, just you know describe what? to us how you'd make bacon? The, the beauty of bacon is that anyone can do it. You know, whether you want to make smoked or, or unsmoked bacon, you can do it at home. So the first thing you need to decide is do you want streaky or back? So back, belly, so from the belly or from the loin, you know, your back bacon. Um, both are delicious. Both are very different. But the process is exactly the same for both of them. So let's start. Let's say we're going to go with a lovely piece of um, back bacon. So you've got your loin. You trim out all your bones. So you end up with your lovely 
eye with the tail attached to that of your loin. And then the first step is you're going to cure it. So what we would be using is a mixture of standard salt with curing salt. Now, there's, you know, people are giving a lot of bad press to, to curing salt. And then people are sort of saying, oh, well, you know, it's not essential. You don't have to use it. You don't have to use it. Correct. And, you know, a lot of it is to do with the color, but a lot of it is also to do with sort of safety hurdles. So um, you're not using a huge amount of it. Generally speaking, about uh, 0.25% of total weight of the piece of meat you're using. So you've got your salt, your curing salt. I like to use a little bit of uh, brown sugar in my bacon. Um, and then I want some oh, botanicals yeah. and some aromats. Not a huge amount. I tend to go with a little bit of juniper, a little bit of dried bay, um, and uh, lots of black pepper. Um, so you've got your black pepper, your bay, your fennel, your brown sugar, your curing salt and your salt. You rub it all over your lovely piece of meat and you let it sit there. And you let it sit there for about 10 days and let it absorb that salt. Um, and once that, that sort of absorption is done, that, that's kind of ready to go. Now, if you imagine that in three stages, so that is now your bacon, uh, your uncured, unsmoked, sorry, so that's your green bacon, um, which you can then slice and cook, and that's going to give you your, your beautiful bacon. Or you can go a step further, and actually that can now be hung and aged, which will become um, pancetta or, you know, or, or more of a cured ham. But we're just talking about bacon here for now. So find a recipe you like the look of, order some, you know, some um, fairly accurate scales. I would suggest there's a lot of people of that kind of hit and miss, you know, you'll be all right, just it's, it's not too difficult just wing it try not to wing it because if it goes wrong it can go wrong um <laughs> that's me i'd be winging it and, and i have done and i've ended up with some very salty bacon in the past so, um and that, and i'm guilty that's that certainly what I, I think the problem is the salty bacon you know look up a method called equilibrium curing eq curing which is whereby you take the weight of the pork that or the meat you're curing and it's a very specific ratio um, of that, of the salt and the curing salt. So once that's absorbed, if you buried a piece of bacon in salt, it would keep absorbing it till it, you know, just keep going until it was inedible. Whereas the equilibrium curing method, yeah. there's no more salt to absorb. So once it's absorbed that, it can't overcure. So it will sit happily in your fridge, but it can't get overly salty because there's no more salt to be absorbed. So step one. Look up EQ, equilibrium curing. You will not have that risk of, risk of over-salty bacon. And it doesn't have to be bacon. Use the EQ methodology for making pastrami, for making salt beef, which are ultimately the same thing. But um, once you've done that, you will get rid of that. You know, Because the worst thing is you, you've gone through this process. You've waited 10 days. You, you wake up in the morning. You've got your bread, which you've baked yourself, and you've sliced into your bacon. You put it in the pan, and you have that first bite, and you want to be sick because it's so salty. Uh, and you stoically yeah, plow yeah. through that because you've yeah. made the effort. Equilibrium curing will change your life. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Can I just, um, I would like to just outline, because I think for the for the point of difference, it will help people to understand how most, um, it, it, and I'm going to put this in brackets, industrial bacon would be made. Now, that's not a poke at industrial pig farmers, uh, no. nor is it a poke at people. Uh, producing food for a market uh, not that i think that the market should ever drive the the desire of the food producers and that might be one of our big problems but if you imagine and i don't know have you ever been to denmark i have yeah and, and you know that denmark is the largest producer of pork in europe and yet you never see a pig 
anywhere. Yeah, yeah, which is weird. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit weird. Anyway, they're all inside. That's fine. It's nice and warm in there. Um, when they reach the desired weight, they send them off for slaughter. They get slaughtered in the traditional way. They're stunned and then their throats are slit and they go off onto this conveyor belt. What they do to make the bacon is they cut the front end and the back end off so that you've got the whole middle of pork, which is, your, as you know, Drub is your, is your belly and your loin together. Yep. They inject that with a saline solution. Then they slice it, uh, sorry, blast freeze it, slice it, and put it in a packet. And as it goes into the packet, they only freeze it to make it tough enough to slice quickly, right? And then that goes into the packet. And so it is technically cured in that it's been injected with a salty water so that it is no longer just raw pork. But it is so far from, removed from what you've just described um, that I think that's a really nice, useful um, visual... Uh, you know, indicator representation of the two processes. And there'll be something in the middle, you know, your good local butcher may well make a wet cured bacon in a brine. Yeah. He might do a little bit of dry cured bacon and using sort of slightly better pork. Um, and that's halfway and that's great. That's fine. Butcher's bacon, if it's dry cured, is it can be absolutely brilliant and useful in lots of ways. But then at the other end, you've got the artisan market that you're in. Uh, or making it yourself, which is just, I encourage everyone to give it a go, perhaps using your equilibrium curing method that you, you've been talking about, because then you don't get the saltiness that you were talking and that I've experienced in my life. Um, but I would encourage everyone to have a go at making their own bacon, if if they eat meat, uh, because it is a revelation. There is little, there is, you know, the, the satisfaction you will get, you know, what we've learned from lockdown is that everyone can bake banana bread and everyone can make sourdough. We, 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 that's a given. You know, if I need to see another person making banana bread, I'll scream. So now that we know how to make sourdough, the, the joy you will get waking up on a Saturday morning, having a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and making a bacon sandwich from the bacon you have lovingly made on bread that you have baked, uh, the joy and the satisfaction you will derive from that is almost impossible to kind of articulate. Um, and that's an extent, you know, whether yeah, it's the tomato the, you've grown and you've picked and your husband, Tim, hasn't snaffled off the um, vine. But, you know, there's something satisfying at a really deep level about doing things like that for yourself brilliant and and the only and then well here's the danger then is that you've grown the tomato you've made the bacon your next step and this is another one that i'd encourage everyone who's got the opportunity to do and you don't need to do it on your own you can do it with a group of other people and you'd be surprised how little land and equipment or knowledge you require the 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 extension of that would be to grow your own pig quite frankly yeah or you know you can there are you could speak to a local farmer so find a farmer look you know who's an RSPCA accredited farmer find a farmer who uh, you may well actually speak to your butcher they, they might be able to point in the direction to speak to a farmer who's not a million miles away from where you live and say look can we buy a pig in 6, 12, 18 months time you know whatever you can negotiate with them the longer the better ideally um, generally speaking I think a lot of yeah. uh, Animals in this country are taken too young, but this is purely a financial and commercial reason. The animals we use at Tempest, we only use breeding sows for a number of reasons. One, the ethics of using a, an animal that's already in existence. You know, anyone can breed more animals. Uh, what we're saying is about using yeah. 
um, assets already within the within the cycle. Um, so we are using breeding sows, and they they tend to be four four and a half years old. They're they're anything towards two hundred kilos. They're big old girls. The fat is unbelievable. The flavor is unbelievable. And we do the same with beef. The only beef we use is ex dairy cow. So we don't use meat that's from animals bred and raised for meat. We use the um, dairy cattle when they finish their lives as a kind of uh, commercial being. We then use that because I think, for my money, that's the best beef you will eat hands down. And it's become trendy, and you know people are, are now talking about it. But it's logical. You you have this cow that either carves or produces milk for its lifetime. Then you eat that animal when it's no longer doing that, and that beef is better for my money than any other piece of beef you will ever get. Um, so again, it's logical. You know, you use all. The, they take a bit more time and care to work with. So these, you know, the beef can be pretty tough. Oh, yeah. Um, that sorry, that's that's my ringing your wife about. No, no, that's my son <laughs> ringing my wife, and for some reason it's set up to ring on her phone, on her laptop. Apologies for that. The magic of everything will take care. Uh, of place actually to stop ourselves because um i think we've got three really good strong points there and we're in danger of muddying the water so we've got number one a better approach to protein eating better but less meat less often yeah then we've got number two understanding seasons and eating more locally grown better food in season yeah and then number three tentative but useful and can be done on a very small scale to start with, growing some of your own stuff. Yeah, growing, slash making, eating better bacon. You know, all of that, growing stuff, making stuff, just, just it, it's easier than you think, and it's just taking that plunge. Start off with, I don't know, make elderflower cordial and realise how easy that is. And then... No, don't, don't do that. Let's waste the opportunity to get drunk. Make <laughs> elderflower champagne or, or or elderflower fizzy beer as it really is oh, yeah. uh, because that is a much better use of your <laughs> <laughs> but yes those, those um, okay Drew, so those are those are brilliant points and you're not going to get any arguments from me about them in fact you know for a lot of that time that could have been me talking it's, you know that's that's great um now we, we we sort of head out of the the meaty part of the of the madam's cast there he is again um is it is it Zander or Aaron? That's Aaron. He's about to get told off. There's <laughs> uh, nothing quite like being twelve and getting told off, right? Okay. Um, so, Drove, uh, can you give me uh, your desert island food book and what you'd have to drink while you're reading it? Now, this desert island doesn't actually have to be a desert or an island. I'm just trying to put that concept out there that you've got. Um, nowhere else to go you've only got one food book you're allowed to have with you and one drink that you're allowed to have with you whilst you're reading it and you've got you've got that sort of situation where there's nothing necessarily to worry about but you know you've got a bit of time and you're going to chill out and you're really going to get stuck into a great book about food um i've noticed recently that a lot of guests have tried to list every book they own and then discard it and and that's 
to be honest, that's cheating. It is. You've had a few more than three points, to be fair, in the previous bit. So, But I'm, I'm going to overlook that and we're going to sort of wrap them all up in the three points you've had. But what I'd really like from you is not a great big long list of books that you almost have. Do you know, I, I'm not even going to do that. You might be allowed to no, two run-ups, but I want you to give me... I, I'm going to stick to the letter of the law on this one. And as, it, as impossible an ask as it is... What would I? I would go with the complete nose to tail. Um, the you know your Saint John, um, oh, Fergus cookbook. Hold the phone. Um, Hang on, because there's two of those now. Now there's two of those. There's the original one, which is a slightly larger format and doesn't have people wearing lots of hard rock jewelry in the photography. But you and then they then they remade it a short while later. Which one have you got? So I've I've got. Um, both actually one was a gift and I'd bought the original one um and and of course you when I you know I've had this for years and actually this was before I lived or inhabited that was in you know in this world of food and it was such an eye-opener because you know offal was a thing of horror stories and and of you know of Michelin-starred chefs and actually it's just a really sensible approach to how we eat food um but it's not it's also an insight into sort of you know drinking madeira at 10 and 11 in the morning and then chucking back other pre-prandials throughout the day and i think it's just a it's it's more of a without sounding too tossy it's kind of a like a way of life isn't it and it's that, that encompassing approach to eating everything and so that would i think be my my book and i could have prattled on and said oh i could have had this or this or this or this which would just show off knowledge of cookbooks but that's not the question the question is pick one and i have and what i really like about that is if for some somehow and i don't know how you've done this but you are the first person to recommend a book or to choose a desert island book that's actually a flipping book I've got because I <laughs> thought I had a lot of cookbooks uh-uh. and I need to buy a whole lot. So have you've not only chosen a fantastic book, and I used to I used to work for Fergus for a very short period of time, a very yeah. long time ago, and it was very exciting. I love that book too. Um, but you've chosen a book that I've got, and that I just that's just made you my favourite guest. But so far, <laughs> when you ask this question, generally speaking, and I'm not wishing to cast aspersions event the the mindset is how do i go for the most obscure book that will make me come across as as like basically way up here and looking down on you in a lot of cases <laughs> um what are you gonna have to drink while you're reading nose to tail eating oh i've got a guess much... i'm gonna i'm gonna write down this is a much much harder one but I, I don't know where to begin, but if I've got to something to sip to kind of something that sort of states the very core of my being, you know, red wine would be a, a, a knee-jerk reaction, but I think, I don't know, I think I'd have to drink Old Fashions. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. If no, I to, the cocktail, the whiskey-based cocktail with bourbon, brown sugar bourbon, and not a lot else. bitters, sugar, orange zest ice cold and it's one of the most simple cocktails on earth but i think in terms of what it delivers it's it's hard to hard to beat and i would if i was told i had two hours now and didn't have to do anything for the rest of it i would get my book i would sit in the garden i'd pour 
a couple of those and just read and sort of immerse myself in that and, and happily get slowly tanked on old fashioned. Oh, a great choice. What a great choice. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I feel, I'm feeling you on that one. I'm feeling you on that one. No doubt about it. And I'm going to, um, I'm going to post up when I put these episodes up live in a week or a couple of weeks, what happens is, I then sort of put a link to the book and a link to your website and stuff um, and a link to all sorts of things uh, so that people can find the stuff we've been talking about. Um, uh, speaking of which, how do we follow you? I mean, are you on, on the um, the all-consuming Instagram by any chance? I am. So Instagram is where I post. It's predominantly food I cook on the weekends and drinks I drink on the weekend. So it's mainly food, cocktails and wine. And generally on a Friday, I'll post a cocktail and a recipe. It Not through any formulaic thing. It just started when lockdown began. I kind of thought I'm going to treat myself to a cocktail and somebody asked for the recipe. And then it sort of went. So most Fridays, I'll put it on a – and everybody's doing it. So it's not particularly novel. Um, but it's Drew Baker one as in the number one, uh, on yeah. Instagram and on Twitter. Um, Got you. But then if you want something which is a bit more about what it is we do – um, a bit more about the charcuterie side of things. It's um, it's Tempus, um, and that's Tempus Foods. Brilliant, fantastic. So we can now get in hold, get hold of you. I mean, oh, Drew, you've only got one job left. And before we get to that job, I'd just like to thank you for coming on. It's been a real, real joy to listen to you. And I know that lots of people who are listening to this um, will have will have enjoyed. You know, not only your enthusiasm, but your ability to shut me up for five minutes. <laughs> well i'll take that as a win uh and i would like to thank you for now rendering my day useless because all i want to do is sit in the garden and drink bourbon now well look that's not useless if if everybody in the world sat down read a good cookery book and had a stiff drink i think you'd probably stop quite a lot of bad things happening um so it, with that in mind with that in mind would you please nominate somebody else alive dead real fictitious to come on the madam's cast and have a bit of a chin wag with me and talk about what they would change about the world of food now here's a question am i allowed to have one fictitious one because it would just be a dream but two a immensely intelligent articulate and informed person who has so much good stuff to talk about food that it would be a real a joy and i think an asset for your web for your podcast but um is that allowed or is that really breaking the rules it's it's slightly breaking the rules but you were so good on your choosing of a book that i'm gonna i'm gonna let you have two come on give well, them to me so who have you got sadly not alive anymore would be jim harrison um the writer and essayist and poet and um the american sort of novelist and essayist and his writing is a joy he i'm reading a book of his called a really big lunch which is just I, I pick it up and I treat myself to a chapter at a time and and it's just an absolute joy. If you haven't got it, Tim, I can't recommend it enough. Um, I believe you've I, just done this to me. I, I have two people because you were so good about the book. The first one you choose is an author that I then have to go and buy the blooming book off. But you will thank me for it, I promise. Okay. Okay, I, well, in which case, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to get hold of that and, and, and read it. Um, and secondly, who's the, your real person? So the real person is actually the person who sent me that, that book. So there's a really lovely circularity to it. And that is Alex Rushmer, 
who is head chef, uh, chef patron, sorry, of Vandalay Restaurant in Cambridge, who was chef patron at the Hole in the Wall in Cambridge. But he is a dear friend, and I kind of turn to him for food advice, knowledge. He's he's an incredible sounding board. He's a ridiculously talented chef and cook, and he is a very lovely man indeed as well. Fantastic. But he's a chef. He's going to be far too busy to come and talk to me. Do you know what? He will. He has found a way of being very talented and making commercially very successful and actually having a life. And his take on the business model for restaurants, I think, is revolutionary and nothing short of genius. Oh, that's fantastic. Because we had um, we had uh, Annalise Gregory on recently, and I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's doing some crazy, uh, some crazy and incredible stuff. Yeah, um, down in Tasmania. Mm-hmm. Um, the chef that I I worked in the same hotel as in London a long time ago. Um, we didn't work in the same kitchen, but luckily her dad was the executive chef at that hotel, which is not why she was there. She was there on her own right, and in fact, it was probably harder for her than everyone else, right? Yeah. Um, but I was able to get hold of her via him. So she came on and we both spent a bit of time talking about how how damaging the the all consuming restaurant model life for a chef can be and how how that cannot be the future of it. So well, Alex Rushler, I'm looking Rushler. forward to um, getting in touch with him and getting him on. Yeah, I'm um, oh, sorry. Can you spell it then? Because I R U S H M E R Alex Rushmer. And I think good. I'll cross that out and write that in. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'll tell you the details, but Alex Rushmer, Chef Alex Rushmer on Instagram, or Chef Alex. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to getting in touch with him, and maybe, you never know, we might be able to drag him on, and and that'll be another nice um, evolution for the Madam's Cast, which, frankly, is just an excuse for me to talk about food with a load of other people who have interesting points of view on it. Um, it's ended up being a lot more serious than I expected, but I quite like that. Um, and we've had a laugh along the way. Uh, Drew, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for coming on. Tim, thank you for having me. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure and as ever an absolute joy to, to speak to you. Brilliant. Well, I'm going to go off and snaffle the rest of that delicious charcuterie you sent to me um, and get, get cracking with the edit on this one. So cheers, Drew. All the best, mate. See you later. Cheers, Tim. Take care. Bye-bye.